Last week, we were traveling to the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, and we had quite a long layover in Atlanta, which was a ton of fun, and so we needed to kill a lot of time, and so young Joseph (laughs) decides what we need to do is ride the tram. I don't know if you've been to the Atlanta airport, they've got like a subway car in there. Now, I had never ridden the tram in Atlanta, and uh, I don't think y'all understand, okay? When I say that Joseph wanted to ride the tram, he was like a kid on Christmas. You would think he had just met Santa Claus or something, okay? So he's all giddy. We make our way to the tram. We get on. We go to the back of the tram, and, you know, it's like a subway car, so there's like things you can hold on to. There's a couple seats, and I look at Joseph, and he looks at me, and he goes, hey, why don't you try to ride without holding on to anything? And I'm like, I'm not that old. I can do that. It's not a big deal. I'd never ridden one of these things before, so I was thinking, okay, that can't be hard. But then, okay, but then I look back at Joseph. He's standing like this. He's looking like he's going surfing. And I didn't even have enough time to process what was happening before the tram took off, and I went stumbling backwards. (laughs) It's pretty easy to fall when you aren't prepared to stand, isn't that right? Well, Daniel and his friends, they also knew that to be true. Their kingdom had fallen, their city had fallen, their own people had fallen, and now as they enter Babylon as exile captives, they understand that if they aren't prepared to stand firm in their faith, they too will fall. And if you can imagine, I know we're all very familiar with this story, but if you can imagine for a moment that this is your first time reading the story, you're left wondering that question as well, aren't you? Will Daniel and his friends stand firm or will they also fall? It's the same question that we still ask today. When parents send their kids off to school, they're asking themselves, will my children stand firm in their faith even when they encounter things that are contrary to the word of God or they fall away? It's the same question that churches and pastors face when when they come to terms with the fact that the culture wants them to conform to the ways of the world. And when pastors and churches face pressure from the outside influence of government and culture, people look on and they say, well, are they going to stand firm on the Word of God? Or are they going to compromise their faith and fall to the ways of the world? Will you stand or will you fall? That's the question that was on Daniel and his friend's mind. And I want you to understand something this morning, church, as we come to this passage, every Christian must be prepared to stand firm in the ways of the Lord, or else we will fall to the ways of the world. Every Christian must be prepared to stand firm in the ways of the Lord, or else we will fall to the ways of the world. Will you stand, or will you fall? And if you think that question has nothing to do with you, I promise you as a Christian, it does. Based on the amount of societal pressure you're going to face and the culture going after you, trying to get you to conform, you are going to come face to face with that question. Will you stand or will you fall? And so what we need to consider together this morning is, well, how do we stand firm amidst cultural pressure to conform? If we know that it's going to come our way and that we're going to have to face it, then how do we actually stand firm against that cultural pressure to conform? And I think we get a lot of valuable insight out of the story of Daniel and his friends as they enter into Babylon. And one of the first things that I need us to understand is we have to be able to recognize this the the, the tactics of the enemy and the culture that they're going to try to use against us to try to get us to conform. 
Notice what verses 3 and 4 say again. The Bible says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, you've probably seen some Bible stories in your time on like TV shows and movies. For whatever reason, they always have Daniel played by some like 35-year-old actor or something. I don't know why, but he's like a man and he's a grown adult. But, but you have to understand this word youths here in the Hebrew indicates that they probably would have been about 12 to 15 years old. So when you're thinking about Daniel... They're, Daniel and his friends, they're people who are Rylan and Carter's age. That's what we're talking about here. They are very, very young, and the king specifically wanted them to be young. Why did they have to be young? Well, because then they could be molded, right? They could be shaped. Fresh clay is always the easiest to shape, is it not? And so the king wants to have the young people come to him so that he can mold them. And in case you missed it, we're already seeing one of the enemy's greatest tactics here that we have to learn to recognize. It's the tactic of isolation. Did you notice that there? Why isolate the youths? He already brought back a bunch of people to Babylon with him, but he goes a step further and wants to further isolate the young people from their families and from their community. Why? Because the king thinks, well, they're young and impressionable. If I can just get them away from their religious families... If I can get them away from the temple, if I can get them away from their scripture, if I can get them away from their religious practices, well, then they'll be open to new ideas. They'll be impressionable. And so step one of the enemy's tactics is to isolate believers. And I want us to understand something this morning, church. Isolated Christians are susceptible Christians. Isolated Christians are susceptible Christians. I know that everyone who is a Christian today who professes to be a believer, they like to think that they are strong in their faith. You talk to people today and they say, I can do this on my own. That's why so many people say, I can be a Christian without going to church. Okay, sure. Technically, you can also be married and never go home to your wife. Tell me how good your relationship is, all right? You could also be married and go to strip clubs all the time. Let me tell you, how strong is your relationship then? Okay, so yeah, you can be a Christian without technically going to church, but it's going to do damage to your faith and your walk with God. People like to think they can make it on their own. They're on fire for the Lord. Here's the interesting thing, right? You look at a fire, you can find the brightest, hottest ember in that entire fire. You get some tongs, you grab the ember, you separate it and place it on its own. How long is that fire going to last, the ember on its own? Not very long, is it? It's going to burn out pretty quickly. Why? Because it was dependent on all the other embers for its heat and for its fire, for being the hottest, brightest one there. And so it is with Christians. Christians are not meant to live isolated lives. Christians are a communal people. We are built up and strengthened in our walk with God as we surround ourselves with other believers and get involved in the things of God. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Do you understand what that that verse is saying, church? 
It means that you, and I'm talking to you as individuals, not as a group here, you as individuals, you are essential to the health of the church. You need the church and the church needs you. You are strengthened together. No Christian is an island and we're not meant to be an island. Listen to me, whether you like it or not, and I know we might all have certain ways we feel about each other, so whether you like it or not, we need each other, don't we? We need each other to encourage one another, to build one another up, to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with one another. When you have tragedies, to mourn with one another. The church needs each other, and we are strongest together as one. That's why Jesus has knitted us together and unified us in his Holy Spirit. That's the way it's meant to be. We are many members, though we are one. And listen, uh, just as Daniel and his friends were exiles in Babylon, the Bible tells us that we are exiles here. The Bible tells us that this world is not our home. The Bible tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. Peter even says that Christians are sojourners and exiles here on this earth. And so if we are to stand firm against the tactic of isolation, we must fight back with involvement. We need to get involved and join ourselves to the people of God, do we not? We need to surround ourselves with other believers who can encourage us and build us up. You show me someone who's here on Sunday mornings, someone who's active and involved in gospel groups, someone who comes on Wednesdays and actually shares with the church and opens up and tells us how we can pray for them, how we can encourage them, what they need from us. You show me someone who's doing all that, someone who's involved in the mission of the church and the church activities, I'll show you someone who is growing in their faith. I'll show you someone who is strengthening their faith and growing in their walk with Christ. But if you're absent from church and you have a habit of being absent from church, if you're not involved at all in the church's activities, if you're not involved in God's mission, listen to me, you are opening yourself up to the influence of the pagan culture. When you are isolated from God and his people, you make yourself susceptible to all sorts of heresy and cultural accommodation. I don't know if y'all like watching nature documentaries like I do. Uh, I, I'll, I'll pretty much watch any nature documentary that's on. But if you watch lions, for instance, when they're hunting, I don't know if you've noticed this, lions typically go after herd animals, zebras, antelope, water buffalo. But have you noticed that a lion doesn't take on the whole herd at once? Have you noticed who they go for? They go for the straggler. The one who has been isolated from the rest of the herd, and then they pounce. So let me ask you something. If you're calling yourself a Christian this morning, and you are isolated from the community of faith, who do you think the enemy is going to go for? When you isolate yourself from the people of God, you make yourself susceptible. So if you don't want to fall victim to this tactic of isolation, you need to learn to recognize it, figure out what it is in your life that is taking you away from the church, that is taking you away from the people of God, that is keeping you from getting involved in the mission of God and the church's activities, and root it out of your life. I don't care how much you like it. I don't care how much you love it. If it is keeping you from God and His purposes, root it out. It's not worth it. Recognize it, root it out, and then resolve to fight back against it. Join yourself to the Christian community. Get involved and help your brothers and sisters in the faith live out the faith together. The church is strongest together 
So let's be strong together. Let's fight back against this tactic. It's isolation and it's dangerous because it makes us susceptible. And you might think, well, susceptible to what, Pastor? To indoctrination. That's the second tactic that you see here. Look at verses 4 through 6. It specifically says, Youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, I want you to understand something here. As these captives are being brought back to Babylon, and they now have to go to Babylonian school, please understand that the goal was not simply to teach these youths. They weren't simply going to say, hey, listen, you're Babylonians now. We need to teach you a little bit of Babylonian history. You know, We want to show you how our economics work here. We, we, we want to teach you our language, our literature, just so you can fit in with society. That's not the goal. The goal is not primarily to teach these youths. The goal is to shape these youths. It's not simply to give them knowledge. The goal is to teach them to think like Babylonians. And that's far more dangerous than just giving them Babylonian knowledge. They want to rewire their brains to teach them to think like Babylonians. It's brainwashing and indoctrination, pure and simple. Of course, we don't see that at all today. (laughs) Praise the Lord, right? No, of course, you see it all the time today. And are we surprised at all that the main places that you still see indoctrination today, they are targeting the who? The children, the youth, that's always who they're going to go after. I read a story just the other day about a uh, teacher who was teaching her classroom of two and three-year-olds about gender, gender identity, different forms of sexuality, and sexual preferences to two and three-year-olds, a class that my oldest son could be in based on his age. Not only that, but just yesterday, I saw that they were having a gay pride parade somewhere in our country, and they were going down the street, and I kid you not, you can check me on this, look it up, there was a a, a parade, and there were homosexuals and transgenders, and they were saying this chant, word for word, we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. They're not even hiding it anymore. They're specifically targeting our children, just like the Babylonians did. These are grown adults who are seeking to expose children to mature subjects and shape the way that they think about these subjects. And listen to me, that's perverse. That's evil, and it has no business being part of this country. Leave the kids alone. Why can't kids just be kids anymore? Let them be children. They don't need to know about these things until much, much later. But the reason that our world is targeting them is because they are young and impressionable and they want to shape them to think just like the world rather than like God. This is exactly what's happening in our world today. But listen, it's not just children and youths. I want you to understand something too this morning, Christians. Everything that you're exposing yourself to on a weekly basis is shaping you. Everything. The type of music you listen to, 
The TV shows and movies that you watch, the books and articles that you read, the social media that you scroll, it is all shaping you constantly. It's changing you constantly. And the goal is not just to teach us, and the goal is not just to entertain us. The goal is to shape us, to get us to think like our corrupt, sinful world, to think just like the rest of the world. It happened in Babylon. It's happening today. Praise the Lord that Daniel and his friends were able to stand firm against this indoctrination. You don't know why. It's because they had devoted themselves to the Lord and they were constantly relying on the Lord and they were consuming His Word. So listen to me, Christians, this morning. If we're not filling ourselves with the things of God, we will be filled by the things of the world. You are an empty vessel. And if you are not filling yourselves with the things of God, you will be filled with the things of the world. If you are not developing a Christian worldview through pursuing the Lord and consuming His Word, then guess what? You're going to be developing a secular worldview by consuming the things of the world. And we're not going to be able to avoid all of these indoctrination tactics, but here's what we can do. We can prepare ourselves and our children to stand firm amidst cultural accommodation and cultural indoctrination. Can we not? So here's my charge to you parents. Teach your children about God. Raise your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Read Scripture to them. Teach your children right now, however old they are, to think biblically about everything. I say, well, pastor, they're pretty young. It doesn't matter. I've got a three-year-old. He got obsessed with this show, and uh, he was really into it. And I, I noticed that on the show, one of the little boys, he had two mommies. And I said, hey, we're not watching that show anymore. He said, why? He's heartbroken. He's three. Can't understand. I said, well, here's why. I'll explain it to you. In the beginning, God made man and woman, and he made them for each other. And so God loves the design that he came up with because it's perfect, and he called it good. And so man and woman together, that is what God blesses. Anything other than that, if it's a man and a man or a woman and a woman, that is called homosexuality, and God says it's an abomination. It goes against him. It's sinning. And I said, this show, they're promoting sin. They're continuing in sin. They're not repenting, and so we're not watching it. You know what he did after that? He was cool with it. Just like that. And he's three. He knows now we don't watch that show. And he goes, occasionally he'll ask me, is this show still sinning? I said, yeah, they're still sinning. He goes, well, they need to repent and turn to Jesus. And I'm like, amen, brother. Yes, they do. You got it. So your children are not too young to be teaching them to think biblically about everything, to view our entire world through a Christian worldview. Teach them. And and here's my warning to you, okay? The world is not going to be lazy with your children. So you can't be either. All right? Did you hear me on that? The world will not be lazy with your children when it comes to teaching them, so neither can you. Raise them up in the ways of the Lord. Make the most of the time you have with them now and prepare them to stand firm against what they're going to face in this world. And Christians, again, it's not just children, but to you. If you spend more time every week consuming secular content than you do biblical content, what do you think is going to have the greater influence over your thinking? Think back about your past week, this past week. What did you consume more of, secular content or biblical content? And if on a consistent week-by-week basis you're consuming more secular content than Christian content, 
I can guarantee you're going to start thinking more like the secular world rather than like Christ. It's shaping the way you're thinking. It won't be long before your morality becomes that of the world's. Your priorities become that of the world's. Your loves become that of the world's. And your worldview becomes that of the world's. We would do well to remember the words of Psalm 1, verses 1-3. through Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, listen, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. If we are to stand firm against being indoctrinated by the world, we must be filling ourselves with the things of God. We must consume His Word and we must become like that tree that has those firm roots that's planted, that's standing firm and prospers in everything. So listen listen to this. It's the isolation tactic, the indoctrination tactic, and the goal when you put both of these together is to create an entirely new identity. That's the goal of this. Look at verses 7 and 8. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to not allow him to defile himself. Now, having been isolated from the faith community and trained in the Babylonian ways, the Hebrew boys are now given new Babylonian names. They are to receive an entirely new identity and be a new person. You are no longer a Hebrew. You are a Babylonian. But Daniel will not have it. He makes his stand here. And this is where a lot of people get hung up when we start talking about the food, right? It becomes the focus of a lot of messages and a lot of devotion when you get to this section of Daniel. What's the big deal about the food? Well, some people have suggested it. It might have been food that was forbidden by Scripture. Other people have said that the food might have been tied to the worship of other gods. Other people said that the food was a way of making the captives dependent upon the king. So basically, it'd create like a Stockholm Syndrome where they would fall in love with their captor because they were dependent on him for their well-being and their survival. You want to know what the truth is? Uh, (laughs) The Bible doesn't say, so it's all speculation. But here's what I can tell you. I don't think the food's the main thing. I don't think the point is to get hung up on the food. And I think there's a clue to that in the Hebrew. Because you see in the Hebrew, verses 7 and 8, they literally start with the exact same verb, to place. Our English translations, for whatever reason, they decided not to do it this way. But it's important, verses 7 and 8 both start with the exact same Hebrew word, to place. The chief of the eunuch places upon the Hebrew boys new names. Before, they all had Hebrew names, and each one of their Hebrew names said something about Yahweh. It spoke of Yahweh and how great he is. But interestingly enough, each one of their Babylonian names said something about a Babylonian God. And so they are being stripped of their identity as Yahweh followers, and they are to now be known as Babylonian worshipers. 
So he places these new names upon them, seeking to give them new identities. But here's what verse 8 says in the Hebrew. But Daniel placed upon his heart. That's what it literally says in the Hebrew. Daniel placed upon his heart that he would not defile himself by eating the king's meat or drinking the king's wine. In other words, Daniel is making his stand here. This is where he's drawing the line. The isolation, that's beyond his control. The indoctrination, that's beyond his control. He can't stop anyone from calling him by a different name. But Daniel resolves that he absolutely will not be built up by Babylon or be made in the image of Babylon. That's what this comes down to here. He will not be a product of Babylon. Daniel says if he is to grow strong, it will not be because he ate the king's meat and drank the king's wine. It will be because the Lord God Almighty made him strong. If he is to rise in the ranks of Babylon, it will not be because he did every little thing that the king told him to do and he was a good Babylonian boy. It will be because the Lord God Almighty blessed him and brought him up in the ranks of Babylon. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? Daniel proposes a test. He says, hey, here's what we'll do. Ten days, we're just going to drink water, eat vegetables. Sounds miserable to me. I couldn't make it, but praise God for them. And at the end of the ten days, they're to see how they compare to the others, and they're found to be better in appearance than the others. The Lord built them up and sustained them. Not only that, but the Bible goes on to say that God had such favor on them that at the end of the three-year period, when they came to stand before the king, none was found to compare to Daniel and his friends. The Bible literally says that they were ten times better than the rest. So don't miss this, church. Please listen to me. Everything they were and everything they became was owed solely to the Lord alone. Not the king, not the Babylonian program, but to God alone was the glory. As they stood before the king, they stood not as products of Babylon, but as products of God and his sovereign grace. And it all started with resolve. Something we could use more of today, couldn't we, church? Started with resolve. Daniel and his friends resolved in their hearts that they would not be conformed to the image of Babylon. And so they were able to stand firm in their faith. I think we can learn from this as well, can't we? We must resolve to be reflections of God, not the world. This would be a good thing for every single Christian to resolve to do today. We must resolve to be reflections of God, not the world. Here's my question for you as you're here this morning. When the world sees you, do they see God in you? Or do they see the world in you? When the world looks at you, can they tell that there's something different about you? Something that stands apart from the the rest of the culture? Or when they look at you, do you fit right in with the culture in which you're surrounded? When the world looks at you, do they see a product of God's sovereign grace? Or a product of this world? You see, Jesus tells us that as his disciples, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. You see, God did not create us and save us so that we could be reflections of this sinful world. The Bible literally says that God created us in his image so that we would image him to the world. So that the world would see God through us, 
Not only that, the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, God created us in His image to image Him, and then He saved us to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. God is always trying to get us to look more and more like Christ. So God forbid that we would image the world back to God rather than image God to the world. God forbid that Jesus Christ would spill His blood on the cross so that we could be reflections of this sinful world even after His death and sacrifice for us. You see, just like Daniel, everything that we are and everything that we are to become is 100% solely due to the Lord and His sovereign work in our lives. You see, people love the story of Daniel, right? Especially in times like these. Everybody loves going to Daniel. They love pointing out all the cultural stuff. But so many people miss the, the point of this story. Listen to me. I'm going to offend some people, but it's okay. I'm used to it. The point of this story is not to dare to be a Daniel. You're going to read it in Bible studies. It's going to be titled that. I've read it in chapters of books. That's not the point of the story. It misses it entirely. The point of this story is not to dare to be a Daniel because, listen, if Daniel was alive today, he would be the first person to tell you that he was nothing more than a sinner in desperate need of the mercy and grace of God. If you don't believe me, go and read chapter 9 when you get home. He says as much. The point of this story is to dare to trust in Daniel's God. Because Daniel's not the hero of the story. God is. And we need to remember that. As Christ followers, we are going to face the same type of things that Daniel and his friends faced. We're going to be faced with that same question. Will they stand firm in their faith or will they fall to the ways of the world? And if you dare to be a Daniel, you are going to fall because Daniel didn't do it on his own and neither can you. When we face isolation and the temptation to be isolated from the church and from the people of God, we must trust that God actually did know what He was doing when He gave us the church as a good gift for us. Amen? I fully believe that God knew what He was doing. So we need to fight back against isolation with involvement. When we're faced with cultural indoctrination, we must trust God and His revealed Word to us. We choose to believe God over and against any so-called truths the culture might throw at us. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. I will spend my life believing that and I will die fighting for that. Do you believe God over against what the world says if it's contrary to the word of God? And when it seems like there's no way to make it in this world given the cultural pressure that we face... No way to advance without conforming and giving in. No way to even live in this world without compromising. We entrust ourselves fully to God. We resolve right here and right now that we will be reflections of God in this world, not reflections of this world back to God. And most of all, church, we look to the greater Daniel, don't we? We look to the one who exiled himself from heaven 
who was without sin, who withstood every bit of pressure to conform, who withstood temptation to give in and take the easy way out, whose sufferings redeemed us from our exile and brought us back into the family of God. Jesus Christ is our strength. Jesus Christ is our hope. He is our peace. He is our all in all. And so we look to Him. Look to Jesus and resolve to stand firm in the ways of the Lord so that you will not fall to the ways of the world. Amen? Let's pray.